The blues is a genre of American music created by African Americans in the early 20th century. Birthed in the South, the blues incorporated spirituals, work tunes, field hollers. It empathized with the hardship and oppression that black folks endured in the Jim Crow South. And yet the genius of the blues isn't just that it connects us with our struggles. It's that it doesn't leave us there. It lifts us from the pit of despair. And it infuses in us hope. It's joy despite depressed or dangerous circumstances. I love the blues. As a matter of fact, here's some vintage blues by one of my favorites, Miss Mavis Staples. How we suffer? Paul Miller, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But I love those lyrics. I love blues lyrics. Here's classic blues lyrics. Haven't we suffered, suffered enough? Now we're out here trying to find some love and trust. Do what you can, do what you must. But everybody's trying to find love and trust. You see, the blues temper hardship with hope. It's music you dance to even in the midst of difficulties. Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Jerry Lee Lewis all played the blues. But I dare say the pioneer of blues music was an apostle named Paul. While down, Paul looked up. While in prison, Paul looked toward heaven. Paul had his head on the chopping block, but his feet were on the dance floor. He found joy. He found love and trust in Jesus Christ. And God wants the Philippians here. In fact, he wants all believers to do likewise. This morning, we're going to look at some more of the Philippi blues, beginning in chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul tells us to take joy, but not in our circumstances. Take joy in the Lord. Notice, though, he also sounds like most preachers here, your typical preacher. Notice he uses the word finally when he's only halfway through the letter. (laughs) That's why you should never get too excited whenever the pastor says, finally. He continues, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Often the best teacher is repetition. Football teams run their plays over and over again. Baseball players field grounder after grounder. They repeat the skill until it becomes second nature. And there are some biblical truths that also bear repeating. You need to revisit them time and time again. In fact, as you survey the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus often repeated himself. Our Lord knew that repetition is a great teacher. What Paul is about to tell the Philippians, they've heard before, 
but he knows they need to hear it again. And so he tells them, beware of dogs. And there's some Bible scholars here that believe this was actually a prophetic warning for the teams on the 2023 Georgia Bulldogs football schedule. (laughs) Beware of dogs. In Greek, it's actually D-A-W-G-S. Of course, I'm kidding. Actually, when Paul uses the word dogs, he's not thinking of UGA football players or even cute, cuddly canines that we keep around the house for pets. No, in ancient times, dogs were these wild, vicious predators. They were a threat to humans, even carriers of disease. And here Paul uses the term as a metaphor for the false teachers who had followed him to Philippi. They were a pack of wild dogs infected with contaminated doctrine. These were the guys we first met in Galatia. They were called Judaizers. They believed that you gained a right standing with God through faith in the work of Christ plus a whole smorgasbord of rules and rituals. The Judaizers taught a tag team salvation, that it was Jesus and the Jewish law that were necessary to save you. Once a legalistic lady, she said to her pastor, she says, I believe the Christian life is like rowing a boat. One oar is the law, the other oar is faith in Christ. And if you drop either oar, you row in circles. You need both oars. Well, the wise pastor replied, Ma'am, that might be a fine illustration, but there's only one problem. You don't get to heaven in a rowboat. (laughs) See, the Judaizers advocated a mixture of faith and works, Christ and law, grace and grunt, the flesh and the spirit. But Paul was adamant. Righteousness is the result of Christ plus nothing. Add anything to faith in Jesus and you've got bad news not good news. Well, Paul continues, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, one of the derogatory names that Jews used to put down Gentiles was dogs. And here Paul turns the tables and he calls the false teachers themselves by their own denigrating title, dogs. The Judaizers taught that in order to become a Christian, you basically first had to become a Jew. You had to adopt a Jewish culture. That faith in Christ was not enough. That you had to follow the Jewish rules and customs. And chief on their list was the ritual of circumcision. Notice Paul says, beware of the mutilation." He's saying, how does clipping a fold of flesh add any virtue or value to a life? Real righteousness is transmitted spiritually, not physically. God wants a transformation, not an operation. Rather than works of the flesh, salvation is a gift of God's spirit. It's received through faith in God. It's not the reward for feats or human effort. It's all about God's grace, love we can't earn or deserve. And the true children of God are those who don't mutilate their body, but who worship and rejoice and believe in Christ. And then in verse 3, he tells us, 
and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, whenever we hear this word flesh, what do you think of when you hear flesh? <laughs> kind of a lustful sound, and it's flesh. Sounds sketchy and shady. But you know, the flesh actually refers to all that we are apart from God. Flesh isn't always synonymous with what we consider to be evil. At times, Paul's flesh dressed itself in its Sunday best and went to church. It got religious. It behaved itself according to the strictest of religious decorum. The flesh can also refer to man's loftiest and noblest efforts. But the problem is, is that the flesh is still man's efforts. And human effort can never make us right with God. And Paul reiterates this beginning in verse 4. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. In other words, if there was a man who could have earned his way to God, it would have been Paul. And in the next several verses, he takes us on a tour through his trophy room. He lists the fleshly achievements that he could brag about. Notice he says, Paul was, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. According to the law, Paul obeyed the law. He was circumcised even to the precise day, the eighth day. As an aside, did you know that a baby's blood doesn't begin to clot until eight days after its birth? Doctors today give the baby a shot of vitamin K to speed along the clotting process. But God was aware of that biological detail from the very beginning, and that's why he put off circumcision until the eighth day. Paul had been circumcised according to the law. He was also of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had a star-studded pedigree. He was pure-blooded Hebrew, God's people. And concerning the law, a Pharisee. Pharisee means separated one. Think of these Jewish priests and clerics and rabbis as a religious gang that rumbled with rules and rituals. The lords of legalism were the Pharisees. They were the strictest of the Jewish rabbis and they treated outsiders with a judgmental attitude. They viewed Jewish tradition as their own turf. Paul was one of them, a Pharisee. And concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You see, when the followers of Jesus crossed into their side of the hood, these Pharisees got ugly, especially Paul. He wanted to rumble. The Pharisees opposed anyone who ignored their rules, which made the early Christians their target. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I had it all, Paul says. Surgery, pedigree, Pharisee, zealotry. According to legalism, Paul had flawless credentials. But here's what he concluded, verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The word counted means to assess or to evaluate. The Greek philosopher Socrates had said, an unexamined life is not worth living. And Paul had carefully calculated. He had added up all of his righteousness. He'd put it on a scale and he'd balanced it out with what God required. It reminds me of the drill sergeant who was in charge of the new troops. 
His first inspection was a disaster. The soldiers all appeared sloppy and disheveled. The soldier, the sergeant, was so angry that he shouted at his men. He says, you step out here and take one good look at yourself. Of course, you can't do that. (laughs) But that's what Paul did. He did take a good look at himself. When he met Jesus, he stepped back from all his religious achievements, and he reflected on his pursuits, and it hit him. Nothing he had lived for had earned anything close to the joy and blessing and righteousness that he had received by grace in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul's religious ambitions had gotten in God's way. For as long as he was depending on his own goodness, he could never be good enough for God. And so in verse 8, he confesses, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Trust me, whatever's holding you back from coming to know Jesus, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. When you put it on the scale, when you really investigate it, you, you count it as nothing for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for, though, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I've put everything away and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, it's not what you've done, but it's who you know that makes you right with God. Paul knew Jesus, and he was more than enough. Jesus is our ticket to heaven. All Paul's rabbinical credentials and religious merit badges were worthless compared to his knowing Jesus. And then he says in verse 9, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You see, at one time in his life, Paul was proud of his religious accomplishments. It made him look better than his peers. Surely his good works would also please God, or so he thought. Before Paul came to Christ, he reminded me of my kids when they were little toddlers. Kathy had these little sailor suits. And she would dress up Zach and Natalie in these little sailor suits. They looked so cute. She would put the suits on them. They were so adorable until I got a little close and reached down to pick them up. (laughs) One whiff. And man, it was atrocious. One smell, it was terrible. They had messed in their diapers. And I'll never forget thinking, how could anything look that cute and yet smell that rotten? (laughs) But that was Paul... He looked pretty on the outside, but underneath he stunk with pride and with self-righteousness. When Paul came to Christ, he learned that true righteousness isn't man-made. The only way to be right with God is by faith. Trust Christ and you inherit God's righteousness. In light of the merits of Jesus, Paul now viewed all of his good works, all of his righteous deeds as rubbish. The term he uses here means dung or manure. When Paul tried to earn a right standing with God, it was all about what he could do. It was do, do, do. But all it amounted to was do, do. (laughs) It's when he stopped trying and he started trusting. That's when he received Christ's goodness. Corey Tim Boone used to say, nestle, don't wrestle. Just nestle, don't wrestle. 
Rest in the work of Christ rather than trust in your own. Our best efforts are manure. It's by faith we mature. I came up with that on my own. (laughs) And here's why this concept of righteousness was so vital. It is so vital. Unless you're in a right standing with God, you have no access to him. You don't really know him. See, sin has to be forgiven. Entrance has to be granted. Favor has to be bestowed for you to come into God's presence and for you to get to know him. And this was Paul's goal. This was the point of it all. This was his driving passion, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I hope that's your ambition. Don't you want to know God? You know, we all need a master passion, an overarching ambition that makes sense out of our lives. I like the poster of the teenage soccer player. Poor kid's on the ground. He's dirty. He's exhausted. His face wears this painful expression. The caption reads, no pain, no gain, no gain, no goals, no goals, no scouts, no scouts, no scholarship, no scholarship, no college, no college, no girls, no girls. Get up, man, get up. (laughs) My point is, is that we all need a goal. And I know nothing more fulfilling than to know the God who created us. A relationship with that God is the ultimate experience. And that was Paul's driving passion, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But this is where a lot of us stop short. Oh, it's cool to know God. It's exciting to know the power of his resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there. Notice he also wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this challenges me. Even if I have to sacrifice, even if if I have to die with Christ to my own desires, that's what I want. I want to know Christ. Have you ever had a friend who enjoyed being with you as long as you were happy and joyful and fun to be around? Oh, but the moment a problem arose, they split. That's a fair-weather friend with not much loyalty. You know, it's just the opposite with our kids. A parent relishes helping their kids through heartbreaks and through tough times. If you love someone... You care about them not just on happy days, but especially in times when they're hurting. What pains me most is to see my child or my grandchild suffering on the inside and yet watch them throw up a facade. Oh, I'm okay, Dad. No big deal, Dad. I'm cool when I know they're not. See, here's my point. If you truly love someone, you'll want to walk with them through their joy and their suffering. And this was how Paul felt about Jesus. He wanted to know Christ no matter what it cost him. He wanted to know his power, but he also wanted to know his sufferings. He desired the same kind of intimacy with Jesus we hope to have with our children. Not only sharing in his victories and joys, but also in his pain and in his sacrifice. Paul continues, verse 12, 
He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. See, Paul had a goal, and that was to know Christ. It was his utmost desire, and he gave it a full court press. He uses that word press. If you've ever played basketball, you know when the coach wants to press, boy, it ratchets up the intensity. Suddenly, you're covering your opponent all over the floor. You're face-to-face from sideline to sideline. It's kind of a mayhem, controlled mayhem. And this is the intensity that Paul puts into knowing Jesus. He presses to know him. As we've noted, righteousness is gained not by trying, but by trusting. Yet building up that trust demands our effort. Realize faith is not a passive thing. Faith is an aggressive, faith is an active pursuit. And here Paul presses, he applies every ounce of energy and attention to his goal of knowing Christ. In verse 13 he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. At this point in his life, Paul had been a Christian for 30 years. He had come a long way, but he still knows he has a long way to go. None of us arrive in this life. We're all pressing on. Never stop growing spiritually. You know, it's been said the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. Never stop pressing forward. Paul continues, but one thing I do. And notice here his laser focus. You know, there are a million activities in life that will distract you from seeking God. Knowing God demands focus, clearing your schedule, making time. Realize it's hard for an Olympic athlete to be world class in more than one event at a time. I I used to wonder why the winner of the 100 meter dash didn't also win the 200 meter and the 400 meter and the 800 meter. I mean, I'm thinking fast is fast. But you know, at a world-class level, the nuances of each race demands a specialization. And the same is true in life. See, you can't be world-class in everything. You have to choose. Do you want to be world-class in sports trivia? Or in playing your Madden video game? Or in managing your stocks? Or woodworking? Or do you want to be world-class in knowing God? What in your life do you want to be world class? Paul wanted to know Christ. It was his one thing. Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Note here, one of the ways Satan distracts us from seeking to know Jesus is by bringing up our past. I hope you know the devil is an astute historian of sins that God has forgiven. And yet what God forgives, he forgets. Please remember that. What God forgives, he forgets. What's been covered by the blood of Jesus has been forgotten in the mind of God. And we need to follow suit. Let's move on, forgetting those things which are behind. I've heard it said, there are two things in life you can't do backwards. 
drive a car, and live your life. Certainly, we need to deal with unresolved issues. And if if an apology needs to be made or if restitution is owed, it needs to be paid. But I don't believe in dredging up distant memories. If it's in the past, man, leave it there. I don't see a value of a wild goose chase down memory lane. No, Paul writes, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. We need to forget the past. We need to focus on the glorious future that we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We need to learn to see ourselves in Christ. And then Paul sums it all up in verse 14. He says, so I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. He's saying we started out in faith. We're going to finish by faith. So now let's walk by faith. And then he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us as a pattern For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. It's brought tears to Paul's eyes that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is again speaking of these false teachers, the Judaizers. By adding to simple faith in Christ, they had cheapened his work on the cross. You see, if you can do anything to make yourself right with God then Jesus would have never had to die on the cross. He would have never had to die in your place. The cross would have been in vain. And even today, there are enemies of the cross. There are people and preachers who try to dilute its importance. You know, some folks are embarrassed by the cross. They view it as an insult to modern sensibilities. Oh, that bloody, gory cross. But apart from that bloody, gory cross, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. If not for that cross, we'd all go to hell. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Reminds me of a poem. Proud young pastor who was an enemy of the cross. He comes to the old pastor and he says, You're just out of date, said young pastor Bates to one of our faithful old preachers who'd carried for years in travel and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. Oh, you still preach on Hades and shock cultured old ladies with your barbarous doctrine of blood. You're so far behind you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the bud of ridicule's cut did not ruffle his sweetness and grace. He turned to young Bates, so suave and sedate. Catch up, did my ears hear you say? Well, I couldn't succeed if I doubled my speed. My friend, I'm not going your way. Likewise, Paul and the Judaizers, they were going different directions. Paul loved the cross. The Jews despised it. 
And so Paul continues to describe these false teachers in Philippi, their real motives. He says their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Their real motive was their own selfish gain, their own selfish consumption, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They were earthbound in their thinking. They lacked the mind and heart of heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget, here is not our home. We are all just passing through. Heaven is the goal. Let's impact the here and now. But our future, our citizenship is not earthly, but heavenly. And he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. Now as we've noted before, our redemption will not be complete until Jesus has restored everything that sin has defiled. And that includes our mortal bodies. At the rapture, these corruptible bodies are going to be raised incorruptible. We're going to be reunited with our spirit in the clouds. And here's Paul's point. If you're a soldier in a battle and you're pinned down under an attacking enemy, but you know reinforcements are just over the hill, then where are your eyes going to be focused? Just over that hill. That's why we need to look to Jesus the Savior who died is the cavalry who's going to save us in the end. The cavalry is going to come from Calvary, from Calvary's cross. Well, Philippians 4, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Continue in your faith and continue in love. And he gets specific here. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, apparently, Euodia and Syntyche were two sisters who had a squabble going on. Two sisters in the church in Philippi who couldn't get along. And news of their tiff had made it all the way to Paul in Rome. In the Greek language, Paul's grammar seems to indicate that both these ladies were at fault in the dispute. What exactly had occurred, we don't know. Was it an overblown slight? Was it a lingering misunderstanding? Was it a jealousy? We don't know. But notice how Paul settles this rift. Very important here. He doesn't delve into the details of the squabble. No, he plainly orders them to get it together. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. You know, unity in the church isn't a luxury. It's a commandment. If you're harboring a grudge, if you've got a little thing going on with somebody in the church, just get over it. It's not worth it. You know, we've been commanded to be one with one another, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yet we should realize that there is no such thing as conflict-free family. A mature believer shouldn't be surprised when humans, even redeemed humans, act like humans. Expect it. 
And don't let the conflicts unravel your faith. When it happens, make sure you show love and humility and a commitment to work these things out. And then he says in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here he tells the pastor of the church to help these ladies work it out. Boy, pastor can be a dangerous job at times. Here he tells the pastor in Philippi to help mediate between these two warring women. The point, though, is that certain disputes do require outside help. And so when necessary, leaders need to step in to facilitate communication and guide quarreling parties toward reconciliation. Who was assigned this task in Philippi? Well, we don't know his name, but we know what Paul called him. He called him his true companion. He had been a true companion to Paul and to another church leader named Clement. And then verses 4 through 7 reel off a series of short commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now recall, peace with God is what happens when we come to Christ and we're reconciled to God. But peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. For the peace of God, think of it as a piece of God's peace. It's a slice of his composure. It's a sense of his invincibility. It's a sprinkling of his love. And in verses 4 through 7 here, we have one of the very few formulas that we find anywhere in the Bible. We can't manufacture peace. It's a supernatural work of God's Spirit. But there are five steps that I can take to put myself in a position to experience this amazing supernatural peace of God. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. Here's step one, verse four. Rejoice in one thing. Rejoice in one thing. And what is that one thing? In the Lord. See, I can't always rejoice in my circumstances, but I can rejoice always in the goodness and grace of God. Step one, rejoice in the Lord in one thing. Verse five, notice step two, be satisfied with few things. The word gentleness here, let your gentleness be known, means moderation, or it's the ability to live without. In short, travel light. If I get enamored with earthly possessions and ambitions, I set myself up for a major letdown. See, it's been said, contentment in this life comes not from getting more, but from expecting less. And so I need to be satisfied with few things. Verse 6 provides three more steps. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Always turn your cares into prayers. And then be thankful for anything. And there you have it, five steps for knowing the supernatural peace of God that passes all understanding. Rejoice in one thing, 
Be satisfied with few things. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything and be thankful for anything. And look what happens when you do. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. Verse 8, finally. And notice this is Paul's second finally. Don't get too excited. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Hey, a new you should think new thoughts. Feed your mind godly stuff. What's noble, what's lovely, what's just, what's pure, what's virtuous. Do that and you'll grow in Christ. But feed it what's ungodly and it's garbage in, garbage out. Paul says in verse 9, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And to me, this is one of the most incredible statements in all of the Scripture. Think of what Paul is saying here. Five minutes after I wake up, while I'm stuck in traffic, on a Friday night at 5 o'clock when the boss asked me to work late, in every situation, do what I do, and the God of peace will be with you. Can you say that? In all those situations? I can't. If the Holy Spirit had not put Paul's comment in the pages of inspired scripture, I'd think the apostle was being arrogant. In essence, Paul is saying, not just do what I say, but do what I do, and God will be with you. May you and I live that kind of an example. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. See, the Philippians had supported Paul financially, but some, for some reason the pipeline had been shut off for a time. And Paul was excited here to see Epaphroditus arrive with new resources from Philippi. And he explains his excitement. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Notice this, Paul is adamant. I don't let my circumstances determine my joy and my contentment, he's saying. Even in prison, which he was, the flag of joy still flew at half-mast. See, Paul had learned to draw from Jesus in all situations of life. In prosperity or in poverty, his approach was the same. He lived his life from the inside out. He refused to let his physical situation dictate his spiritual condition. Are you a victim of your circumstances? Or do you trust in Jesus? I love the point by Ella Wilcox. She says, One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides the goal. 
and not the calm or the strife. What are the set of your cells? Paul writes in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's pain never caused him to doubt God, but his prosperity never caused him to forget God. He was confident that the strength of Christ would sustain him in any and every situation. See, the Christian cannot lose. He or she can handle anything thrown at them through the power of Jesus Christ. In high school, I carried a little pocket New Testament with me. And in it, I had Philippians 4 verse 13 underlined. In fact, I read it prior to every football game I ever played. And I interpreted it in terms of winning the game and scoring the touchdown and triumphing over my opponent. I can do all things through Christ. But you know, when I gave up playing football, and reluctantly so, I wasn't good enough anymore, I realized that again this verse applied. Christ had strengthened me to play, but he could also strengthen me to move on from playing. Hey, he'll strengthen you for success on the job or for a transition to another career. He'll strengthen you to start work or he'll strengthen you to retire from work. He'll strengthen you to raise your toddlers or he'll strengthen you to let your adult children go. He'll strengthen you to make a major change in your life or he'll strengthen you to dig in and hold the course. In Christ we do all, we can do all things. The power of Jesus is sufficient for every challenge life throws at us, even as those challenges change in nature and character. And then verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. See, technically, Paul didn't need the Philippian support. If God had not supplied his need through them, it would have come through others. But Paul appreciated their willingness to be used. He recounts their long history together. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Notice their generosity to Paul was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God himself. You know, God is a giving God, and when we give to him or when we give to others, God is pleased. And notice here, Paul sees our charitable giving as a spiritual investment. He tells the Philippians that when you give, fruit abounds to your account. This is why you and I need to make wise spiritual investments. We need to treat our offering like a financial investment. Put your money where you believe it will get the best return, where fruit is going to abound to your account. We should invest in pastors and churches and in ministries that are accomplishing something vital for God's kingdom. For he says in verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Give to God's work and he will abundantly 
give back to you and supply your needs. That's a promise. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now recall, Paul was writing from Caesar's palace. Not a Las Vegas hotel, but from the royal dungeon in Rome. Chapter 1 told us that Paul was in jail for the furtherance of the gospel. And from that Roman prison, God had given Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel to Rome's royal household. And apparently many had taken heed. Now there were new believers in Caesar's court. The emperor's own soldiers and servants had been saved. And now they are sending their greetings to the Philippians through Paul. I'm certain their salvation was a great joy to the believers in Philippi. And so prisoner Paul, always dancing in the midst of danger, he concludes his letter in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 